Welcome to Open Plaza, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. In this episode, Cesar Valdeloma talks to Dr. Hofsman Ospina about his interdisciplinary study, Cultivating Talent, centered around leadership of Hispanic teachers and leaders in Catholic schools. For more information on today's episode, visit htiopenplaza.org. Welcome, friends, to HTI Open Plaza's podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you all today. My name is Cesar C.J. Baldelomar, and I'm a third-year doctoral student in theology and education at Boston College. Today, I'm here with Professor Hasman Ospino, Associate Professor of Hispanic Ministry and Religious Education and Chair of the Department of Religious Education and Pastoral Ministry, also at Boston College. Uh, Dr. Ospino is also my doctoral advisor a mentor and a dear friend. So it's an honor to record this conversation with you today, our second one for Open Plaza. This time we're here to discuss your groundbreaking study of Hispanic educators in the United States Catholic schools titled Cultivating Talent, a summary report of findings from the national study examining pathways to increase the presence of Hispanic teachers and leaders in Catholic schools. The report, which you co-authored with Melody Wittenbach, the executive director of the Roche Center for Catholic Education at the Lynch School of Education and Human Development at Boston College is based on a sampling of more than 300 Hispanic educators equally divided between teachers and school leaders and spanning 71 dioceses and archdioceses across the country. The research was conducted in 2021 via online surveys, focus groups, and one-on-one -on -one meetings slash conversations. Professor Ospino, welcome and thank you for being here today. Hey, Cesar, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to be part of these conversations you know, with uh, HTI, our friends you know this uh, venue, La Plaza. You know, it's, it's just fabulous and a good way to not only engage in dialogue you know, with you and, and other colleagues, but also to share you know, some of the recent research that is being done in our world of theological education. Yeah, and very important research. Um, you know, this report, I think, uh, will highlight many important things that I hope we can discuss during our conversation, but many things that also relate to higher education, right? So we'll, we'll get to that toward the latter part of today's conversation. So Professor Spino, thank you again. Can you tell us what inspired you to undertake this timely and extensive study? Sure. Uh, I'm pretty sure that some of you or some of the listeners uh, might be wondering, well, what does uh, a study on Catholic schools and teachers, Hispanic teachers in Catholic schools have to do with uh, theology? And the answer is a lot, no, a lot. Because there is an intimate connection between uh, what we do at the theological level and how you, we prepare the next generation of young Latinos, Latinas, uh, who are actually moving through the pathways of education in order to get to where we are. Not only that, but how we are preparing these young women and men, the next generation of Christians and Catholics and other uh, faith-based uh, people in communities to think about the faith critically, to think about the faith in a way that is uh, engaged. Now, this is a study that I was able to conduct you know, with my colleague, uh, Melody Wittenbach, 
who is uh, an expert in uh, Catholic uh, education. And uh, in 2016, we at Boston College uh, ran another study on the Catholic schools and Hispanic uh, families. We published uh, the results and I'm pretty sure that in, in our conversation we'll make uh, references to that study as well. And uh, the idea of that study in 2016 was to understand how Catholic schools have served uh, the Latino community, are serving the Latino community today, and how they can serve uh, Latino children and their families uh, in a much better way. Why Catholic schools? Why this uh, focus on, 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 on Catholic schools? Because in the Catholic world, in the Catholic world, uh, Catholic schools have served as the channel through which many of the leaders, whether it's uh, priests, vowed religious, lay leaders, and theologians have been formed. No? So Catholic schools have been a catalyst for communities, for, for, the, for the Catholic community to navigate not only the culture, but also the faith in the context of this, uh, of this country. So as a matter of fact, Catholic schools were built primarily to serve the immigrant population, mainly the Euro-American population. Now, the question is, are Catholic schools serving the new immigrant populations that are transforming and reshaping Catholicism in this country. And the jury is out. And so far, the, the reviews are mixed. No? Sometimes in some places, yes, we got Catholic schools that are championing service and, and education of Latinos or Asian students and families and Black students and families. But there are far too many Catholic schools that are way behind responding to the signs of the times, to the needs, uh, to the needs of today. So part of my research as a practical theologian and who's interested in theological education and religious education is to assess how the structures that exist in, in the church are serving you know, these communities and responding to the questions of our day. So that 2016 study was kind of the entry point. We took a, a, a long view at Catholic schools and how they are serving Hispanic families and children. But we noticed something that uh, when you look at Catholic schools, uh, there is a catalyst within Catholic schools that makes uh, the difference, that makes the difference, you know? So the buildings are fine, the curriculum is fine. I mean, curriculum, the curriculum changes, the curriculum can be good and not so good, and you can always adjust it. But there is one factor that really makes a difference in a faith-based uh, educational institution, and that is teachers, educators, no, and leaders in general. So you got good leaders and good educators, the institution, it doesn't matter if the building is run down, the institution is gonna thrive. If you could have the most beautiful building and the a state-of-the-art institution with labs, and tons of money and an endowment, but if you got teachers and leaders that are not so good or not concerned with the new generations and the new questions of the day, then the school is not gonna respond. It's just simply, it's not gonna work out. So my team and, uh, and, uh, and I at Boston College said, we gotta eventually go back to the teachers and learn more about 
how Hispanic teachers and educators are actually impacting the education in Catholic schools. And that's what this study is all about. That's, that's beautifully put and absolutely essential to examine the life of teachers and what drives teachers to teach right, in, our, in our schools. Um, I saw in the report, and before we get to the findings, I think one of the, the most shocking findings to me was the 9% um, number, right? So only 9% of teachers in your study identified as Hispanic. Hispanic teachers seem to gravitate to charter schools, perhaps because of pay. You know, I don't know what, what the, the statistics are there. But what do you make of this, especially given that 42% of the 70 million Catholics in the US are Hispanic? Why the disconnect between church membership and the composition of school leaders and teachers? Well, I, to be honest with you, I think that having 9% of teachers in Catholic schools uh, uh, who are Hispanic, uh, frankly, it's a miracle. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a miracle. Uh, I mean, it, the number should be, honestly, it should be 40, 50, 60% or, or close to it or at least match that 42% that you just mentioned, you know? But in 9%, it's still a lot, you know? I mean, when you take the, the, the universe of uh, teachers in Catholic schools, you know, to say 9%, we're talking about almost 15,000 of these teachers. Now, why are we not having more Hispanic, Latinx, Latino teachers uh, in, uh, in these Catholic schools? I think that, you know, just to put it in a very simplistic way, you know, the answer is because for decades, we as Catholics and the Catholic Church and our Catholic schools failed to enroll Hispanic children in classes and to graduate them from our schools. The vast majority, more than two thirds of Catholic schools, uh, teachers and leaders are graduates from, from Catholic schools. And this is not unique to the Catholic tradition. This actually happens almost to every private school and every faith-based school. When you have a good experience and as you are educated, people wanna go back to that. People wanna give back to their institutions. They go back to their alma maters and they want to serve those communities. It happens to all of us because we were formed and we wanna to give to others part of those gifts that we, that we received. Unfortunately, uh, Catholic schools you know, have a poor track record of enrolling uh, Hispanic kids historically. We have made major improvements in the last say three decades or so. You know, and my sense is that whoever is having this conversation, Cesar, in 30 years, by the time I am retiring and you are a famous professor, then uh, most likely this, uh, you know, there will be the number of Hispanic teachers in Catholic schools will likely be, and I hope is at least 30 or 40% because today we have more Hispanic kids and, and so on. So enrollment in Catholic schools in many ways could be uh, considered a factor determining the type of leadership that you want in the future for these particular institutions. But on the other hand, you know, it not only has to do with that enrollment, it also has to do with sense of belonging. 
And that, again, has been a major uh, or an Achilles heel for Catholic schools and even for the Catholic Church in general when it comes to relating with the Latino community. We still live at a time in history in which uh, there are many corners of the Catholic world that treats Latinos as visitors or just recent immigrants or Latinos as someone who is, who are or people who are asking for benefits and are not ready to commit. And that is false. I mean, in general, it's false, you know? More than half of uh, Catholics, uh, uh, than, than Hispanic Catholics in this country are US born, just to, to, to think about. Not even to mention uh, the, the fact that about 18%, sorry, 60% of all Catholics under the age of 18 are Hispanic, you know? Uh, we should not forget the fact that Latinos have been in this country for centuries, no? So it's not that this is a new presence. It's not that Latinos don't, are not interested in, in, in education. The problem is that we have had a problem, you know? And for the Catholic Church, you know, it has been a problem. And for our Catholic schools, it has been a problem that we do not still see Latinos, the Latino community as contributors and as owners of the means of evangelization and uh, education and many other expressions of life, of Christian life uh, in the United States of America. So if Latinos do not feel that they belong, they are not gonna go, to, they are not gonna flock to serve these institutions and uh, sustain them. But on the other hand, you know, it, because it works both ways, you know, if those who are the current leaders in these institutions do not, you know, open the doors and do not start negotiating and not only negotiating, but eventually making way, you know, stepping aside. So the Latino community and the, and the other minoritized communities that are now the thriving, the, the end, giving the energy uh, to the Catholic church to flourish, then they become, you know, an obstacle for those communities precisely to achieve that, uh, that, that, that flourishment. So I would say that those would be the two main, uh, the, the two main uh, factors. Money, oh, well, yeah, it plays a role, you know? But the truth is that uh, nobody teaches in a Catholic school to be wealthy. <laughs> that's, that, that's, and nobody, I mean, we know that, you know, and this is unfortunate, actually, that uh, most Catholic schools pay about 50, or 40% less than what a teacher would make in the public school sector, no? But I know for a fact, and we know for a fact because uh, we have seen this throughout the decades, that most people who teach in a Catholic school or lead in Catholic schools or faith-based communities, they don't do it because of the money and the pay, they do it because it is a vocation. It is something that they wanna do, they wanna give, and uh, I mean, ideally we wanna compensate fairly because it's a matter of justice here. This is an ethical, uh, an ethical question. And we need to continue to strive to pay fair, uh, our teachers and our leaders in faith-based uh, uh, schools you know uh, what is owed to them. But that's not the, the, the main driver. That's not the main driver. If that were the main driver, we would not have teachers at all in Catholic schools, no we have almost 140,000. Yeah, incredible. And in light of that number, can you please provide us a brief summary of your most important findings? Um, so to you, what were the most important findings um, from this study? 
Well, uh, there's a lot of data, you know. I mean, when you do a, a mixed methods study collecting qualitative, quantitative data, then you end up with a world of information. And uh, let me just highlight three numbers that I, that I think uh, uh, are important, you know. The first number, you already mentioned it, you know, number nine. That's 9% of teachers uh, and leaders in Catholic schools uh, uh, are Hispanic. So why is this important? Because only a decade uh, or a decade and a half ago, that number was less than half, okay? So what we are seeing right now, and we're now able to track, is a fast growth in terms of the leadership at the educational and teaching level, leadership and, uh, leadership and educational level uh, among Latinos in, the, uh, in these institutions. And that means a lot, you know? That means that the larger the presence of Latino leaders and educators in Catholic schools, the more chances are that these institutions uh, are gonna become more sensitive and more open and more engaged in welcoming Latino families. Now, I don't wanna be naive. I don't wanna simply say just because you get a bunch of Latino teachers and, uh, or educators and leaders in a Catholic school that now this is gonna be a safe haven for, uh, for the Latino communities, no? It, it, it's not a, uh, I mean, it's not the logic of cost effect, you know? But yes, there is a there's a difference, you know. It is there is plenty of studies, not only in the private school sector, but also in the public school sector that indicates, and you know this data well, Cesar, that you know, the stronger the presence of minoritized teachers and leaders in a school, the chances are that uh, the number of families and the programming and the curriculum and the support for minoritized families and students is going to increase, you know? So we know that, and that is, uh, we, we see growth and we are, we are beginning to see. That's one of the key, the, uh, the key findings. The second finding that I, that I would like to highlight from the study is the fact that about 40% of uh, Hispanic uh, Latino teachers and leaders in Catholic schools are immigrants. And that is just fascinating. Fascinating because, uh, I mean, not surprising on the one hand, it's not surprising, mindful that about half of all Catholics in the United States of America are immigrants, particularly Catholics over the age of 25. So it should not be surprising, but it should be fascinating, but it is fascinating. And it is fascinating for many reasons. I would say, that the presence of immigrant teachers in Catholic schools, you know, serves as a reminder of the contributions that immigrants bring and are making in the United States of America to all institutions. In this particular case, Catholic schools, but also to the larger society, the business world, medicine, just name it, you know? So this twisted idea that some political leaders and some ideologues and some people who are almost ignorant, you know, have sold, want to sell, sell us that immigrants are here to take stuff away, that immigrants are here to uh, use the system and abuse the system. 
it's false, it's false, no? And we see this, I mean, Catholic schools are thriving in many ways because we got many of these immigrants actually contributing. Also, I find that the, the number fascinating because uh, immigrants, no, and this is something that we discovered through the research, uh, in, in this particular research, the presence of immigrants widens the perspectives, no? Let's face it, in the United States of America, as much as we are and see ourselves as a first world nation and as a developed nation and so on, we are very insular in our understanding. Well, we're sometimes very narrow-minded. We think that the American way is the only way of doing things, you know, for everything, whether it's militarily, religiously, at the business level, just name it, you know. And sometimes we just get caught up in our little worlds, you know, the American way and the way we do things. And in the, for Catholics, you no, know, the white, your American way of doing things is the best way. But then you encounter these teachers and these leaders who have had experiences in Mexico, Dominican Republic, uh, Colombia, Venezuela, Argentina. They have had uh, experiences in Spain. Some of them have been missionaries in Africa or have worked in different parts of the world. So they bring this global experience that frankly blows your mind. You know, It's just like, a, wow, you start saying, so when they teach a history class or when they teach a geography class, you don't have to imagine Nicaragua. You don't have to imagine Venezuela. You don't have to imagine conflict. You don't have to imagine poverty or you read it in the books because you have experienced it. And then these teachers are speaking out of their own, uh, out of their own experiences. And they invite us you know, or they invite the uh, educational communities to imagine, no, or, or actually to think in a more globalized perspective, you know, they expand the imagination. And that's a contribution that very, 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 very few people actually acknowledge, no, uh, about the immigrant community. And the last thing I will say about the, the, the immigrant uh, experience is that nearly everyone, I mean, nearly every immigrant teacher is bilingual and sometimes trilingual, okay? So that is a, another gift, you know? I remember when I was uh, a first immigrant, you know, I, when I migrated to the United States of America, my in instructor of English, you know, was teaching us words. And then uh, this person says, okay, so what do you call someone who speaks four languages? And we said, well, multilingual. What do you call someone who speaks three languages? And everybody trilingual. What do you call someone who speaks uh, two languages? Bilingual. So we were happy that we knew these big words, you know, that's what we were learning. And then the professor said, what do you call someone who speaks uh, only one language? And then we said monolingual. And the professor said, no. And we said like, we were shocked, you know? And then the professor said, American. And we just didn't get the joke, frankly. You know, we didn't get the humor in there, the sarcasm. But it's very true in many circles, you know? The, alert, the allergy that exists in so many places when people see bilingualism as a deficit, which is sad, you know? And then the irony is that these same people who see bilingualism in immigrants as deficit, then they go and pay tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars to learn a second language when they are adults or when they need it for their own jobs. 
That's the irony of, uh, uh, of our country. So Latinos bring this bilingualism, multilingualism that enriches Catholic education. As a matter of fact, one of the most uh, beautiful experiences that we encounter in our study is the two-way immersion, Catholic schools, you know? Catholic schools are a little bit behind in terms of the uh, race to educate bilingually, you know, in this, uh, in this country, but it is actually immigrant teachers, many of them who are making it possible for Catholic schools to be these two-way immersion places, bil uh, bilingual places. I think that I already gave you two stats, two numbers, and uh, I mean, I don't want to uh, overdo it, but uh, let's continue the conversation and maybe down the road, I'll tell you more stats and, and findings. But I guess that these two are, are, are quite important and, and interesting. Thank you, Professor Espino for that response. And um, I think something that is extremely fascinating here is the international perspective that you brought up, especially given that uh, there are these notions of subtractive education that are circulating. And, and by subtractive education, what theorists mean is that unfortunately, in order to assimilate, um, educators around the United States subtract the experiences of immigrant children, their cultures, their languages, um, the things that, that motivate them even, right? And, and supplant them with American ideals of what success is, what, uh, what, what entails, you know, rightful education as they call it, et cetera. So I think that this international perspective is something that's worthy of more research. And even, you know, as a, as a teacher myself in, in, at Boston College's International Studies Department, I teach a course titled Ethics, Religion, International Politics. And one of the reasons I love teaching in that department and that course is because we gather all the international students basically at Boston College, right? And, and the perspectives are so rich, uh, the sources even, and it's always, always remind us that the world is much bigger, as you're saying, right? Than the United States view than our local parochial contexts. So I think that it's necessary in order to expand it. And even more, right, in the Catholic church. I mean, Catholic means universal, right? So, so the question is, why not more of this international perspective, especially here domestically in the US? Again, given the numbers, given that Latinos are what really are keeping the Catholic church floating here in the US, you know, and not just, not just um, Catholics, but all denominations really, right? Have seen an influx of Latinos and, and you know, the vitality that immigrants and second generation, third generations bring to religious expression. So it's just, I, I think it's fascinating, you know? And so um, I hope that there's further research on this international perspective going forward, because I think it's absolutely vital. So in 2016, as you mentioned, you published a report titled Catholic Schools in an Increasingly Hispanic Church. So in light of that report, which you briefly mentioned, what were some of the most surprising, least surprising findings from your current study? The least surprising uh, findings, uh, one of them is, uh, I mean, I don't know how, for, 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 uh, for some people, you know, this might not be surprising, for others it might be surprising, but, um, we discovered in 2016 that actually when Latinos are present in uh, Catholic schools, they tend to be among the most educated uh, and credentialed leaders in the Catholic school. You know? 
So a lot of them with master's degrees, with PhDs, with other you know, the professional degrees that uh, they might receive either in Latin America or in the United States. As a matter of fact, something that uh, it's, a, it's something that I'm, I'm actually pursuing. I don't have uh, data, you know, or at least sufficient data to prove this uh, hypothesis, but I'm beginning to see glimpses of it. And it's that uh, there are many professionals who arrived from Latin America, doctors, lawyers, dentists, engineers, uh, people who have uh, training in political science and so on. When they arrived in the United States of America, some of them do not find a way to exercise uh, their profession, unfortunately, because of licensure uh, dynamics, sometimes it's the language, sometimes they arrived in the US, you know, in their 40s or 50s, and they just feel that they don't have enough time to catch up and adjust to the new, uh, to the new culture. Well, you know what, the wealth of wisdom that and experience that these people bring to the United States of America uh, is huge. And then many of them actually find an outlet you not know, to share much of that wisdom and leadership by becoming teachers. You no, know? some go to public schools, but many of them are going to uh, to Catholic schools. And I think that that's something to, you know uh, to keep in mind. So that was corroborated. You know that sense that when Latinos are present in Catholic schools, they also tend to be among the most educated uh, uh, people in the in in the school community. Some of them have actually, I, uh, this is something that I, that I found interesting when we were doing focus groups, you know, many Latinos have two and three master's degrees, which, uh, you know, uh, you, it seems like overeducation. And then, you know, when you ask uh, some of these people, so why three master's degrees? They say, well, sometimes they, 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 they need the, the degree in mathematics so they can teach uh, math, you know, but then they also want to do a degree on cultural studies and they get a master's degree. So they want to understand how culture works. Many of them have, have degrees on how to teach in a second and third language, you know? So all these dynamics, you know, uh, there's a sensibility in which these teachers want to be the best, you know? And again, it goes back to the whole, to that whole dynamic that minoritized or leaders from minoritized community often work two, three, four times as hard as anybody else because either we, we feel that we need to uh, be better prepared or we want to overcompensate, you know? So we, we, we want to overcompensate because uh, the system, if we want to use that category, doubts us, you know, and puts uh, suspicion on us. And they treat us sometimes as we are unable or incapable of doing the work well, you know? So yeah, you've got all these teachers who are, uh, who are, uh, who are a highly educated powerhouse, a powerhouse, yet there is a glass ceiling. There's a glass ceiling in the world of Catholic education. And this is something that, you know, I think is worth mentioning. When you, I mean, usually teachers, you know, from, from, from the universe of teachers, some of them will become principals. And from those principals, a handful would become assistant superintendents and superintendents of Catholic schools. Well, guess what? That's where the glass ceiling comes, you know? Very, very few in the United States of America. I think it's about four or five superintendents of Catholic schools in the United States of America are, uh, uh, are Hispanic, okay? 
that is a loss, a major loss for the church, for the Latino community, for the educational world, name it, you know? And so now what, with this study, we wanna start a conversation. How do we break that glass ceiling? You know, how do we break that? And how do we ensure that the pathways for these people to exercise leadership are there? And sometimes it has to do with connections, but sometimes it has to do with training and opportunities for leadership, you know? You could be highly educated. You could be highly educated in one of these schools and never become a principal because you were not given the chance, you know? Or you may be a, a, a successful and effective principal, but they never invite you to work at the diocesan level or to become a, a, a superintendent. And that needs to change, you know? And I think that having the data in studies like this one will help us to move uh, in, that, in that direction. So that's kind of, uh, I would say, compare, you know, comparing the two studies, something that uh, we corroborated this time, and I think is begging for, 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 for more analysis. But let me actually look at the other side. Now, what would be something that, um, that, is a, that was surprising? Uh, I mean, with so many numbers, you know, one thing that I found surprising, and uh, I found actually, uh, is how committed these teachers and leaders, Hispanic teachers and leaders, are to their faith. No, I mean their participation. They're no, they are. These people are engaged in their faith life. These are faithful women and men who want to live their faith and practice it. I mean, more than 90% are churchgoers, you know? I mean, think about in this day and age, you know? And I mean, a lot of, so, some of us may think, of course, you teach in a Catholic school, so you gotta go to church. Well, no, <laughs> there is no, again, let's forget about this linear thinking, you know? So if you're hired as a math teacher and as a science teacher or a, a, a physical education teacher, I mean, Yes, there's an expectation that you live your faith if you're working in a faith-based institution, but it's not expected in, in, in many ways, no? Or are, this is not forced. Well, most of these teachers are church core. Many, so many of them are catechists. Many of them are involved in faith-based activities, advocating for um, uh, immigrants, advocating for the poor, working in shelters. To me, that is an a fabulous, fabulous example of how faithful these women and men, these Latinos, Latinas are in, uh, in, in these Catholic schools. It's a gift, it's a gift that these people are modeling how to live faith in life through the work that they are doing. So it's not just a job, it's a vocation, it's a mission. Thank you. Uh, related to that is, is, is a question that I've always had in terms of political composition. Now, I know that the study didn't focus on politics, um, focused on leadership, um, on, on you know the teachers that are missing that should be in the classrooms. Um, but politically, do you have any guess of, you know, especially the church-going teachers, right? Politically, how are they influencing their students? Well, uh, there's a, you know, we asked them, uh, for instance, we asked them because uh, 
I have a particular concern about the role of uh, educators and theologians as well in the public uh, arena, you know, in the public square. So definitely I inserted a number of questions with my colleague. We inserted a number of questions on, uh, do you do advocacy, for instance, you know, on advocacy and what type of advocacy? And uh, you can detect, you know, the type of advocacy, you know, the leanings, the political leanings of, uh, of a group by the type of advocacy that they, they do, you know? I mean, uh, there is the, of course, the group of, uh, uh, for instance, Catholic educators who push uh, anti-abortion and uh, pro-life uh, advocacy, which, you know, is more than fine. It's part of being Roman Catholic and you, and, and you, do, and you do that. There are others who push more uh, social or socially oriented uh, questions, you know, not exactly related to sexuality or to life issues, except, you know, when it comes to euthanasia or war and so on. But in listening to the answers or looking at the answers and in listening to the conversations with uh, the Hispanic teachers, I would say that most of them at this very moment, you know, uh, would be uh, morally traditional, you know, in the sense of, uh, which actually describes the Latino community in general, you know, morally traditional, politically progressive, you know, that's what I would, uh, uh, how I would catalog this body of educators. Uh, so many of them are very traditional in terms of their Catholicism, you know, working with the clergy, uh, listening to bishops and church teachings, uh, church goers, you know, they receive the sacraments, uh, anti-abortion. Uh, so these are people who are you know, strongly in favor of life and the human dignity of the, uh, of the person. And so in, in that sense, it's kind of, you know, bread and butter, Catholicism. And at the same time, these are teachers that, uh, unlike you know, many of their white counterparts, for instance, white Euro-American counterparts, these are people who are really argue, uh, advocating, many of them are advocating uh, about immigration reform, you know, which is an allergic point to, for many Catholics. They are advocating about uh, shelters, for instance, you know, housing housing and uh, job and better job opportunities that was that was something that i that i saw on a regular basis i also saw in, in the data many of the latino of the latino teachers advocating for better conditions for women you know, better conditions for uh, especially mothers you know prenatal care support for single mothers support for uh, mothers who uh, uh, were abandoned, you know, uh, support for spouses whose, uh, who one of their, you know, uh, their partners are in, uh, in prison, you know, or were deported. You got these Catholic school teachers raising awareness about that. So I think that in that sense, many of these teachers are, you know, expanding the range of concerns that often, you know, we, we tend to identify with uh, Roman Catholicism in, in, in these days, you know, in the political world. Uh, I mean, I find, I, I find it very unfortunate that many uh, uh, people within and outside the church 
reduce Catholicism to pro-life, anti-life, uh, you know, the pro-life, anti-life dynamic, and usually through the lens of anti-abortion, pro-abortion you know, uh, uh, conversations. And but Catholicism is much, much bigger than that. It's much bigger than that, you know. So being pro-life, I would, I mean, most of these people are pro-life and you know they defend life at, uh, 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 from time of conception till, until natural death. I don't think uh, we didn't see any leanings towards you know people kind of breaking apart, breaking away from uh, from the Catholic tradition or the Catholic Church. We didn't see any of that in our data. But what we saw was an expansion, an expansion uh, in terms of the range of questions that are being asked. And frankly, I have a hypothesis uh, about that, Cesar. And my hypothesis is for these people, you know, advocacy about being hungry, being poor, being immigrant, having someone in prison, being separated from a spouse or from a child, for all of them, this is personal. It is personal. So it touches upon your own life, you know. I mean, all of, I mean, any of us, you know, as immigrants or children of immigrants in the United States or grandchildren, you know, of immigrants, any of us know someone in the Latino community who's hungry because did not have access to uh, to health care. We know someone who is undocumented. We know someone whose child has been uh, uh, mistreated in school because of their skin color or because of their last name or because of their accent and so on, you know? So we know that, we know. And for us, that type of advocacy is personal. And I see that a lot in these teachers. Uh, definitely, what you're hinting at here is, is really the, the uh, you know, coming together of Catholic social teaching right, in a way that that's not normally practiced in American political life, right, so, right. Um, so, so I think that bridging is essential and also represents perhaps a remedy to the polarization that we see in American politics. I right? see, I see that as a hope, yes, I see that as a hope. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of diversity, switching gears here as, as we kind of wrap up our conversation, a recent book by journalist and professor Pamela Newkirk titled Diversity Inc., the fight for racial equality in the, in the workplace shines light on the nefarious practices that institutions undertake to give lip service to diversity, which itself has become a buzzword, while not actually committing to it. Uh, so, for example, you know, a lot of these institutions um, and, and, and the way she describes it in her book is from Hollywood to academia, right? Um, these institutions will put brown people, for example, you know, on, on boards or will, will put brown people in strategic places in order to take pictures of them and then uh, say we're diverse. But in terms of the decision-making and the actual imaginations and the actual processes, you know, that really structure and influence these institutions and the people who work for them and are part of them, leadership is not found there, right? So it's kind of what you're hinting at in the report about the superintendents, for example. Yes. So in your view, what does diversifying an institution actually mean? What would it look like? Hmm. Well, I think that, oh my goodness, it's a loaded question because uh, now that you mentioned this author, you know, most likely whatever I say uh, is going to be dismantled by your, uh, your, 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 own argue, you know, the, your own way of thinking and arguing, Cesar. Uh, but I, I think that two 
diversification at the institutional level, and this applies to Catholic schools, theologates, it applies to faith communities, uh, it must begin with an, an acknowledgement of who constitutes those communities, I think, you know, uh, it's, got, it's gotta be, and not only that, no, so who constitutes these communities? And then asking the question, uh, at the service of whom are we, you know? So I think that those two dynamics go hand in hand. Uh, I mean, we could have theologates or Catholic schools that are, uh, uh, say, you know, mostly white, you know? And then they, say, they, they can tokenize the community, Latino community, the brown communities, the black communities, and say, we're gonna welcome at X percentage of kids who are Hispanic, Black, Asian, you know, Native American, and then we'll, we'll diversify. But uh, pretty much, you know, the, the, the modus operandi and the culture remain kind of the standard white you're American, you know, or whatever is mainstream in, that, in, in, a particular, uh, in a particular case. So I think that you know the diversification of uh, of the of, of an institution, you know, and its population and its immediate community must go hand in hand with what do we want to do? You know, what do we want to prepare these these young students, you know, to do when they leave with a degree from our from our uh, our institution? Okay, are they going to go and challenge the status quo? Are they gonna challenge uh, injustice? Are, or are they gonna be at the service of the status quo and the systems that oppress people sometimes, you know, that deny the dignity of uh, the dignity of people? And I think that, you know, that second part of the question, you know, at, uh, uh, to the service of whom are we, then is gonna force the institution to review who do they hire? How do they teach? How do they develop curriculum? What authors do you highlight? Who you do you invite to a lecture? How do you engage families, you know, and, and, and so on? But I think that diversification, it still began with a serious self-assessment of who we are and at the service of who are we as we move, uh, you know, uh, especially, and I'm, I'm focusing here, or educational uh, institutions, and that's and that's why I I mentioned you know that this is at the level of elementary, secondary schools, but also at the level of seminaries and and, and universities. No, so without answering those two those two questions, then uh, we end up tokenizing communities. We just simply end up, and and we have to really move beyond. If you allow me thirty seconds here, no, but we really have to move beyond. Uh, uh, the understanding of uh, whether it's Catholic education in schools or uh, the understanding of theological education as uh, merely the production of leaders who are credentialed, okay? Because that's the problem that we have in the United States of America. We got far too many doctors, you know? The United States of America every year grants more than 50,000 doctoral degrees. Just think about it. Not to mention the enormous number of master's degree that are uh, degrees 
that are given every every year and then bachelor's degrees and associate's degrees and kids graduating from high school and then everybody has a degree everybody has a Dana. everybody has two three four five degrees and everybody's a doctor and everybody's a master and so on and then our institutions become machines no credentialing machines but what we are failing to ask is why in the first place do we have a Catholic secondary school? Why in the first place do we have a theology or a seminary? Who are we serving? What kind of change do we want to cultivate or do we want to trigger in society? What kind of world do we want to build? Absolutely. And I think the, the two reports put together, the one from 2016, and the one we're discussing now, yeah, this one. Yep. show the importance, right, of of considering the interconnections, the undeniable interconnections among uh, K to twelve education, the communities, right, and higher education, right, because it's all circular. I mean, Absolutely. the people in higher education are the ones training the teachers, you know, who will train the next generation of students who will probably go into academia, etc. You know, so it's it's a wheel, and then these people go into the communities, right, yeah. and also so it's fascinating and i think that having these two reports together um, side by side really does provide a more comprehensive understanding of of the role of faith education right our communities and again the interconnection among them um, so you mentioned uh, higher education and to wrap up i want to just focus here on the field of theology and religious studies for a bit for this last question mm -hmm. according to the latest data from the american academy of arts and sciences of the roughly 225 doctoral degrees awarded in theology or religion in 2014, which is the latest statistics, only nine, so 4.4% of the 225 doctoral degrees awarded in theology or religion went to what they call Hispanic students. What do you make of that? I mean, that's that's a, a, a narrow number, 9%. And then when you consider that as of the fall of 2017, all of first full-time faculty in US colleges and universities, out of all of them, 76% were white, while Hispanic faculty accounted for 3%. And then of those faculty, those holding the highest academic rank of professor were mostly white males, 54%, and white females, 27%, while black males, black females, and Hispanic males each accounted for 2% of those holding the rank of full professor with Hispanic females only holding 1%. So what implications, again, do these numbers in light of your study have for widening the field to scholars of color and also for knowledge production and meaning making beyond a certain limited perception and imagination? Fascinating. I think I want to start with uh, one word and I want to try to unpack it in order to, to think out loud with you on this question. And uh, I think the question is pathways. You know, I want. Uh, I think that one of the challenges that we have in the theological edu uh, educa theological education world in the United States of America is that we either over focus on. Uh, the end, uh, you know, uh, end results or, or the end of the, of the chain, you know. So we, seminaries are focused on granting MDivs and MA degrees 
so people can go out and then do ministry, no? And then universities, if they are doctoral degree granting, then they focus on getting the two or the one or three people who are gonna get the degree or five people, whoever, whoever that is, and they, they focus there. But very few of us, very few of us are asking where are these people coming from and how in the world they ended up in our programs? We're not asking those questions. How, do I, how, how did Postman Ospino ended up in a doctoral degree program at Boston College? And the only way for, you, for anyone to know that is if you learn my story and you learn the mentors about the mentors that I had and you learn about the obstacles that I had to jump and the hoops that I had to jump in order to get where I am, no? Well, the truth is that nobody cares about the hoops and the people ignore the narratives and the histories. Everybody cares about celebrating that, you know, John, uh, Juan, Maria, Macarena, Cesar, and, and name it, you know, got a doctoral degree, a PhD, and then, and then that's it, no? But in celebrating, which is, I mean, it's fine to celebrate, but in celebrating, what we are you know, forgetting is that, you no, know, in the celebrating the one, we forget that 200 were left behind along the way and will never get there, you know? So pathways are important. You don't become, uh, I mean, you don't get to master's degree or to the doctoral degree without a, a solid master's degree. And you don't get to a solid master's degree without a solid bachelor's degree. And you don't get to a solid bachelor's degree if you come from a under from an uh, underperforming public school in the United States of America, seventy-one percent of our Hispanic children go to underperforming public schools. The United States of America is de facto creating a subclass with our Latino children, and we are not paying attention. Our churches are not paying attention. Attention, our seminaries are not even looking into, into these dynamics, no? So then we complain that we don't have enough students for bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees. But how? How? See, if we don't have these, uh, you know, the, the, the pathways, you know, are not working for the Latino community in many spaces. Only 4% of Hispanic children in the United States of America attend uh, attend Catholic schools, okay? Actually, less than that, it's 3%, you know, attend Catholic schools. We know that about 6% of Hispanic children, give or take, attend private and charter schools, okay? Everybody else, 94% go to public schools. And unless theologians and pastoral leaders and bishops and anybody else who takes theology seriously, looks at what's going on in terms of early childhood and elementary school and secondary school, you know. Uh, Cesar, you wrote a number of years ago an excellent piece on how minoritized kids, for instance, are targeted in Catholic schools through grading, no? And how, how I mean, literally, this is targeted, you know, and they get lower grades and they get punished unusually 
no, just because they're Latinos and black, you know, and even school authorities will deny this to their death, you know, but the truth is that the data doesn't lie, the data does, doesn't lie. And then where are the Latino theologians advocating for these matters? Because it's beautiful to speak about theology in the abstract and all our decolonizing and all our, uh, no, the systematic and methodological uh, uh, conversations that we have. And we love to talk about the Trinity and we love to talk about the uh, salvation and grace and so on. Yes, but salvation in the here and now. And that begins when a mom has a three-year-old and she doesn't know where to send that kid. In her neighborhood is a school that is underperforming and she knows that if she sends this, the, the kid to that school, her kid most likely will not graduate from high school. You see, those are the conversations where, and I think that pathways, pathways is gonna be the key. Well, Professor Ospino, I mean, as always, a wonderful conversation and difficult subjects that we're tackling here and, and um, people's lives are at stake, you know, as you're answering. But thank you for opening pathways uh, through these reports, you know, mm -hmm. for us to start thinking deeply about the interconnection of, of the issues, right? The school to prison pipeline, of course, um, the way that disciplinary methods in schools affect our students. These are all just thoughts that come to mind from our conversation now in the reports, you know, that, um, and also the, the perspective, the international perspective, I think also warrants further research, further investigation. So with that, I wanna thank you for opening pathways for us, for me, for our audience, um, and also uh, really bringing your wisdom and knowledge to bear on, on our communities, right? And, and specifically for the aid of our youth. Absolutely, thank you. No, thank you for the conversation, Cesar, and thank you to HTI for uh, the space to know for us to engage in this, uh, in this dialogue. Thank you so much, yes. And then absolutely a shout out to HDI, to uh, Macarena. Thank you for, for all your work in organizing this. And once again, thank you to our audience. Thank you, Professor Ospino. It was a great conversation. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.